Well, it's excellent for us to be here once again on the first of the week. We're so grateful for those who are here present in presence, uh, visiting with us, those who are online with us as well. We're so thankful for your being here. God has blessed us with this privilege of being able to be together, to encourage one another. It's a difficult time. It's daunting to know whether we ought to be out, whether we ought to stay home. But God has promised us that this will be an encouragement to us. And so we're grateful to be here, prayerful for those who are unable to be out, who may have been exposed or are concerned about others and so are staying home because of that. And we are grateful that we have a loving and a gracious God, though, who has given us this day to be together. We're looking here in Mark chapter 1, this reading in verses 9 through 13. And Mark has already told us in the first verse of his gospel that he's presenting to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we have this moment when all of Judea is coming out to John at the Jordan to be baptized, and Jesus himself comes out. And as he's baptized, something very different happens. The, the sky is ripped open, and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove, and this voice comes out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Certainly, all of the others who had been baptized, this is not something that happened with them. There were others who had witnessed this. This is not something that only Jesus saw. In fact, we are told that this was part of what would manifest the Christ to Israel. And we'll see that in just a moment. But then we have this kind of shocking detail that comes afterward of Jesus being driven out into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan and passing this time together with these uh, wild animals. So Jesus has just been shown as Christ by John's baptism. As I mentioned, the heavens are parted, so God is involved very clearly. He's opened the heavens before this event. The Spirit has come out of heaven like a dove, and God himself has spoken, calling Jesus his beloved son and saying that he pleases him. And again, this is the way that John the Baptist was looking for the manifestation of the Christ in John chapter 1. It's only after this that John begins to call him the Lamb of God. John certainly knew who Jesus was, but this is the signal he was waiting for. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel... Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. What does John mean there, I did not know him? Certainly he knew him, he's his cousin. The point is, I did not know that this is the Christ until... The sign that I have been given happened. And now I declare to you, this is the Christ. Here is the, the Christ who takes away, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he began to declare Jesus as the Christ because of this event. But we see this event. And it could be easy to imagine, going back to Mark 1 now, it can be easy to imagine that this would now be an easy time in Christ's life. You think about the good here. Mark, in Matthew chapter 3, when he comes to John and John tries to impede Jesus' baptism, Jesus says, well, I must do this. It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I want to do everything that is my Father's bidding. And so Jesus has just sought to do that. He's gone out to do something that men would have said is unnecessary. 
by our understanding of baptism for the remission of sins, it wasn't necessary. Jesus didn't need to have sins forgiven, but he did need to fulfill the Father's will. <laughs> if he had not been baptized, he would have been disobedient and therefore would have been sinning. So he fulfilled the Father's will. He received the Holy Spirit in a very special way. As John pointed out, this was the proof that he is uh, the Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaking of uh, this measure of the Spirit, if you will, that the Son has. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he's telling the Colossians, Don't let anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This was not just some other person who happened to receive the Spirit of God. He received the Spirit of God because He's God. It is of His Spirit that He's receiving. And so He received the Holy Spirit in this special way. And finally, as we're looking at the account in Mark chapter 1, God has said to him, I take pleasure in you. I am well pleased at what you're doing. So we see this as perhaps now, Jesus is going to go off and he's going to reside in this mansion. He's going to become the king and everything's going to be easy for him. Well, that's not at all what we see. What we see is it becomes worse. Things become more difficult now than they had been. He was raised as a poor carpenter's son. By this point, his father is gone from all indications in the text. It's been a difficult sort of life, a simple life, but a difficult sort of life. And now he's just done exactly what God the Father wants and he's driven out into the wilderness? It seems so strange to our ears. The term used for wilderness here is a very stark term in the Greek. It means solitary, lonely, desolate, and uninhabited. The, Old Test the older versions had this as desert. He's gone out into the desert. That's not exact description compared to the way we use the word desert. We think of a place with lots of sand. But they meant a place that's deserted. That's where the word actually comes from. There's nobody there. That's why it's a desert. This is a place where Jesus is going to be alone. He's doing the will of God the Father, and yet he's left alone? What a strange thing to consider. He's not just going to be alone. He's going to be alone for 40 days. He's going to be alone and suffering hunger for 40 days. And, of course, uh, this is a tie-in directly to what happened with Moses as Moses went up to receive the law to give to Israel in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 18. We're told that he went up into the midst of the cloud, into the mountain, and was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now you remember, Moses is on the mountain with God, 40 days and 40 nights. But here we see Jesus being driven out into this desert wilderness to be alone for 40 days. Besides that, we're told specifically that he's being driven out there to be tempted by Satan. Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 record the three great temptations of Satan. What a terrible time. He's starving and Satan comes and says, let's make these stones become bread, if you're really the son of God. He's desirous of being the king that God has sent him to be and Satan says, well, I'll just give you all these kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me. What a temptation. He's alone in the wilderness and here's an offer. He knows that's not the way. And then Satan says, well, isn't God going to take care of you? Just throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Here, God, who won't let you even dash your foot against, against the stone? And every time Jesus says, it is written that I will do these things my Father's way. But he's suffering these temptations of Satan all by himself in the wilderness. And it's meant to portray this idea of a place of fear. 
There's loneliness. There's temptation. It says he was with the wild beasts. Now, we see that phrase. It doesn't mean that much, but you go be with the wild beasts. Imagine being out on a mountain by yourself, and you know there's bears. You know there's wildcats around. You know that you are under their power. That's what's going on here. Jesus is out in a place where there's wolves and coyotes and lions and bears. And he's defenseless out there in the midst of this place of fear. What we really get a sense of in this wilderness is the absolute representation of a world that has been thrust into the futility of sin. That's what loneliness comes from. That's what danger comes from. This is all the futility of sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 22. Here's how Paul describes the, the world we live in. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Well, that, that is some poetic language. And what it's saying is that this whole world is subject to torture. We're suffering here. This is not the way the garden looked. This is the way the world looks after the garden. Because of sin coming in, there is destruction at every hand. And so this wilderness that Jesus goes into looks like the futility of sin. This is him dealing with this from day one as his ministry has now begun in full as the Lamb of God. Leviticus 14 through 16 and chapters 21 through 22, they all deal with how to, how to handle sicknesses and problems with the body that's decaying and what to do if you have contact with the dead. Leviticus is dealing with a world thrust into the futility of sin. In Isaiah 59, the first couple of verses we're familiar with, it talks about God's hand not being shortened, but our sins separating us from him. But look at verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 Verses 9 through 11. Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation but it is far from us. That's Jesus' situation. As he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness at the moment when he's fulfilled the righteousness of God. What a strange moment in Mark chapter 1 as we see Jesus being baptized, and yet this is what awaited him. When I'm studying with people who are hearing this expectation of what it's going to be like once you become a Christian. They've been hearing this from all these mega churches. They've been hearing this from their friends. As soon as you're converted, Satan can't touch you. <laughs> oh, you're going to have all your heart's desire. That's a lie. <laughs> you know the ones that Satan has to work the hardest to get? Are the ones who are trying to do God's will, not the ones he's already got. I often warn people it may get much worse. <laughs> your family may turn their backs on you because you are in a certain way condemning them by choosing what they've chosen not to go after, the right thing. You may lose your job because your boss may ask you to lie, and you may say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't lie. And you may say, well, fine. I'll get someone who can. <laughs> and I've known people in these situations where those things have happened. As soon as they've become the child of God, things seem to have gotten much worse. 
And they've been dragged off into this wilderness and futility. And they begin to, to face the frustrations of what life is really like because they finally see it for the first time. We blind ourselves when we're part of the world. But when we start to see things through God's eyes, we begin to see just how horrible things really are. But what a blessing that we do have in our walk with God. And I'm not going to make this a lesson on depression. But the, the good news always starts with the bad news. We have to understand what the world looks like before we have, can understand what we're looking for in the gospel and what God is giving us in the gospel. But this situation with Jesus is certainly not what we'd expect for one who was just baptized and certainly not for one who is the Son of God. And yet we ourselves sometimes, as we begin to come to the Lord, we expect that our life is going to be a bed of roses when the Son of God himself did not lead a life that was a bed of roses. It was a difficult walk. Let's have a look at what we're really seeing here. The Apostle Paul later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 will call Jesus the second Adam. And I believe that's what we're really seeing here in Mark chapter 1. I want to kind of present this to you as a second look at Adam. And we'll see this comparison in just a moment on a table that I'm going to set up that will help us to kind of see what we're really seeing in Mark chapter 1 when we see Jesus baptized and then drawn out into the wilderness by the Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthians have been doubting the resurrection of Christ somehow. These who had believed and were a church that had been, been serving for so long, some have come along and begun to blind them to the reality of resurrection. And so Paul spends this treatise in chapter 15 about what the gospel is really about. And the kernel of the gospel is that a just man died for your sins and was resurrected. And if he hasn't resurrected, there's no hope for you. There's no reason for you to follow him. Because there's no hope for you that if you die with him, his justice will bring you back as well. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49, he begins to describe how resurrection works. And here's what he says. As it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as, as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And he's right in the midst of his treatise, trying to explain to them the importance of the understanding of this doctrine of resurrection. And what he's saying is, Jesus embodies what earthly Adam was meant to be. Jesus did what Adam had failed to do. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He began that in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The same argument he makes in Romans chapter 5, that one man brought in transgression... But another man who was much more powerful than the one who brought the transgression in was able to bring salvation to all men. One righteous follower was able to undo what the unrighteous had done. So the point is, Jesus resisted every type of human temptation without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says exactly that. He is able to be a sympathetic high priest because he became like us, was tempted in every way as we are, yet he didn't give in. So he knows how to overcome every possible temptation that I might face because Satan threw all of them at him 
and didn't find a wall, didn't find a break in the wall. And so Jesus was able to resist every type of human temptation. I can go to him and petition his help. And so Paul is using this argument as an allegory to encourage the Corinthians to think about what their station is. All men bear the image of Adam at birth. We're all born physically of the line of Adam. Somewhere along the way, all children came from Adam and Eve. And so we begin in the image of our father, our earthly father. But in the same way, because of Christ's sacrifice, all men will bear the image of Christ at the resurrection. That is, all men are going to be resurrected. They're all going to take on a resurrection body. That's really where his argument ends up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Both the evil and the good, both the just and the unjust will take on a resurrected body, a body that's suited for a life beyond the physical life here. That's bad news for an eternity that's not a physical destruction. That's a spiritual destruction. You don't want a spiritual body that can withstand spiritual destruction for eternity. You want a spiritual body that's going to be with God for eternity. But those resurrected bodies are made to withstand eternity. They're not physical. They're not made of the same things as temporary here. So we start off with this image of Adam, this physical body. Yet Christ has made it so that we all will bear this image of him, a resurrected body. And that's the point of the resurrection uh, chronicle here. But the conclusion that Paul brings in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, for these Christians who are struggling with this is, live as though you already have that resurrected body. Live in such a way that you're giving your body to the Lord already. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's the conclusion. We'll overcome the sting of death. We are going to resurrect. Live in such a way that you expect a resurrection and to be with the Lord. Romans chapter 12 says the same thing. Give your body, your physical body daily as a living sacrifice. Be building up your spiritual body to the service of God. That's the idea. So let's see this comparison laid out side by side. We have Adam, who is son of God in the sense that he's made in the image of God, and Jesus Christ, who is son of God in the sense that he is deity, like the Father. He is, Hebrews 1.3 says, and John 1.14, he is the very image of God. When you see him, you see God in the flesh. Adam, however, was made in God's image. He was made to reflect in some way God's image, and that's why we have this kind of question, in what way? How does Adam and Eve look like God? Well, not necessarily physically they don't, but they were given dominion as God had dominion. They were given the power of procreation as God had the power of creation. And so we do see some aspects of Adam and Eve that resemble God, but we look at Jesus and we can rightly call him God. He doesn't just resemble God, he is God's image, he is God. And so there's that distinction. And there's that stark contrast in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 47. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Not a great contrast. There's nothing similar in the two of them. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1, verse 12. We have Adam, who's in Eden. As you read that word in the Hebrew, literally you're reading the word paradise. And how did he get there? Genesis 2, 8 and 15, God formed this special garden and he took them in and he placed them there in this garden to tend and to keep it. It was perfectly fashioned for him. How did Jesus get in the wilderness? The Spirit drove him there to be tempted by Satan. God placed them both in the situation they were in. We're going to see how they come out of that situation. 
Jesus is alone. It's what the word wilderness means. He's desolate. He's in this desolate place. God did not leave Adam alone. He prepared a helper for Adam. We see that in Genesis 2.18 as he made the woman to come and be this helper that was meet for his need. And so Jesus is in the wilderness alone, tempted by Satan. But Adam is in the garden with his helper, tempted by a serpent. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes along, tempts Eve first, then she falls into the temptation, gives to her husband and he eats, and then they both begin to blame God because of what the serpent had done. Revelation 12 and verse 9 tells us that this is the same tempter. Revelation 12 verse 9, we see now Satan as a dragon. But in Revelation 12, John tells us that is the same serpent from the garden. He's called the devil and Satan. But Jesus faced him alone in the garden. Adam had help. And then we're told in, Matthew, in Mark 1.13 that Jesus was with the wild beast. You remember the, the situation of Adam with the beasts? He's naming the tame beasts. The beasts were tame. There was a point at which Noah was able to call all the beasts onto the ark. How could you do that? They're tame. It's after the ark in Genesis chapter 9 that, Jesus said, that God now says, the animals will fear you. Why do animals attack men? Because they fear them. <laughs> And so they will fear you, and their dread, your dread will be on them. And then there's this question of bloodshed that begins in Genesis chapter 9. But before that, the beasts were tame. They came before Adam, and Adam gave them names. And so you've got this pleasurable image versus this terrifying image. You've got Adam in the best possible situation, a place that was perfectly made for him, with someone there perfectly made to help him with the instructions that are so simple from God, and yet he failed to please God. And you've got Jesus in this horrid situation. He's just done God's will, but now he's off by himself in the middle of this desert place with wild animals and no food and Satan himself trying to tempt him. And yet he pleases God in the middle of this place. And what we must understand as we're serving the Lord is that we can't blame our situation. It is not our situation that determines the outcome of our service to God. That's what we want to do so often. Well, if so-and-so wasn't in the White House, I sure could serve better. Doesn't matter who's in the White House. <laughs> it matters who's on the throne. <laughs> That's who we're going to serve. So you look at the history of Israel. You look at the history of the Christians in the first century. Who was on those thrones <laughs> where, they were, where they were serving God? Didn't Daniel rise up? under a foreign power that wasn't serving God? Didn't Joseph rise up under a foreign power that wasn't serving God? Didn't Paul do his best preaching when Nero was on the throne and wasn't serving God? Isn't it amazing? We tend to think, boy, it'd be great if we had our guy up there. <laughs> we do have our guy up there. And he's an advocate for us. We have to understand it's not the situation that determines the outcome. But what is it that makes the difference between these two? Let's go back and look at these quickly. The first thing is we see the problem with Adam and Eve. They sought to be like God by carnal means. They're going to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they're going to know the things that God knows. But ironically, that's what causes them to lose the image of God. They disobeyed, and they lost that image of God that they had from the outset. They sought carnal ways to be like God. I thought it was interesting that Rick brought this verse out from John chapter 8, verse 29. How did Jesus seek to be like his father? He said, the father has not left me alone, 
because I always do those things that please him. John 8, 29. How did he seek to be like God? By doing God's will. He did it so much that Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2. And this is the treatise on how these people who are struggling to get along in some cases, how they ought to be serving. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 8, speaking of Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Jesus do? He obeyed so much that God glorified him. He did God's will. And the end of God's will is our glorification and his glorification. And Adam and Eve didn't understand that. They sought something else. And what they ended up with was something else. Something much less. Something they sold short. Adam and Jesus both had the word of God. Jesus obeyed. Adam did not. That's where the situation arises. We've got Adam in Eden, and because of his disobedience, he's kicked out of paradise. And now he's got to go out and, and till this hard, accursed earth. That's the curse. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. You will till in the sweat of your brow until you return to dust. And he kicks them out to the east of Eden and blocks the way to the tree of life. But Jesus, because of his obedience... He returned to the glory he had with the Father before the world was. John 17 and verse 5, that's what he said. Father, I've done the work you've sent me to do. Allow me to come back to the glory that we had together before the world was. He obeyed, and his absolute expectation was he was going back home to be with the Father. He's not alone in the garden. He had a human helper. Sometimes human helpers assist us. Sometimes they lead us astray. But... God didn't say, okay, Adam, you get a pass because Eve caused you to stumble. He still condemned Adam for what he did. We're the ones who are responsible for following God and not men, and not our wives, and not our children. We've got to follow God. And the only way we can really help our wives and our children and our fellow men is if we're truly serving God. Because then we can bring them with us. Otherwise, we're going to lead them astray and go astray when they go astray. God had given him help but they didn't help each other. One thing that's fascinating as you look at that text again in Mark chapter 1 is that Jesus was not really alone. We've pointed out several times that the idea of his being in the wilderness was his aloneness. And he was alone in terms of human agency. But it tells us something very encouraging at the end of verse 13. The angels ministered to him. He didn't have physical help while he was there, but he had spiritual help. God was aiding him because he was doing God's will. We may not have physical help while we're here on this earth. We may not. We may suffer, and we may suffer our whole lives, and we may suffer until we die physically. But God has promised spiritual help for those who are seeking him. One form that he gives it to us are those around us who are seeking to do his will. He can give us both physical and spiritual help in that sense. But so often, what people are looking for, what seems so shocking about Jesus being driven into the wilderness, because people are looking for being driven off to the mansion. They get the Tesla and they drive off to the mansion because they just obeyed the God of the universe who's going to give them everything their hearts ever wanted. No. He's going to give them everything his heart wants for them, which may be best borne out by physical suffering here to the point of bringing out what's truly important spiritually. That's the refining by fire. 
That's not something we look forward to, not something we think of as pleasant, but something that God will use to refine us to his purposes. In John chapter 14, Jesus was, he could tell that the apostles were frightened because he kept talking about leaving. He made a promise for them that he wasn't going to leave them alone either. John 14 verses 25 and 26, he made a promise to them that though he had spoken this way while he was with them, he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Father would send the Spirit in his name and he would teach them all things and bring to remembrance those things that he had said to him. In Hebrews 4, we find out we also have this helper. We were talking about him before from Hebrews 4, verse 15. It is Jesus. He's our high priest that sympathizes with us. And it's interesting that as Jesus speaks of this helper, the original says, I will send another helper. Why would Jesus say another helper? Because Jesus is the helper. He is the paraclete. That's the word that was used in the Septuagint to describe the Christ who was to come. It's the word Jesus uses of the Holy Spirit, and it's the idea that, that comes forth in Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our helper. He hasn't left us orphans. He hasn't left us alone. So while we're in this wilderness of sin all around us and this destruction and decay that we can see going on, we have someone that's ministering to us. It's our high priest. If we will serve him and call on him, he will help us overcome because he overcame when he was tempted in every way. We're not really alone, even though we may feel like it sometimes in this wilderness. Well, the serpent tempted Eve, used her to reach at him. And as I mentioned before, they both blamed God. It's the woman you gave to be with me. It's that serpent. If we didn't have him in the garden, they're blaming God. That's what we tend to do. I was born this way, God, so how can you blame me for it? Were you? And has God asked you to become something better? Become something better. God's given you all the tools for it. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was tempted directly by Satan. And he refused to betray God because he knew that God's will was better than even his own desire. In the garden, he said, I don't want this cross, but I want to do your will. So show me which is better. The answer was the cross. Jesus went to the cross. He wanted to do the Father's will. Satan used all of his arsenal on Adam through Eve and on Jesus. And I want you to consider that both of them had a type of hunger. Adam and Eve sought that tree that they shouldn't have. There's Jesus, hasn't eaten for 40 days. Satan's first temptation was to make these stones become bread. In the midst of their hunger in this world, Satan attacked them. But there was a way out in God's word. Adam and Eve didn't take it. Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he always makes available the way of escape. <laughs> there may be various temptations, but nothing except what is common to man. What Adam suffered, what Jesus suffered, you're going to suffer the same things. It's part of the human condition, but there's a way out. There's a way of escape. And again, Hebrews 4.15, we have the high priest who can sympathize with us and is willing to help. Through Adam's sin, then, man came to worship the creature rather than the creator. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at that on Tuesday, God willing. Man has, has transformed what he believes is God into something that's much less usually something that resembles himself. <laughs> the creature that man is really worshiping is himself. Convenience and, and the simple things and the luxury. And man is worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Matthew chapter 15, as the Jews thought they were worshiping God, Jesus said, no, you're worshiping your own doctrines. You're creating, you're, you're teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And it's become futile, your religion has. 
They're worshiping themselves and worshiping their own ideas. So through Adam's sin, the creature became the focus. But through Jesus' obedience, we learn about two creatures, (laughs) this Lamb of God, this Lion of Judah, the ones who overcome. The Lamb of God, John says in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, that takes away the sin of the world. A lamb is so unassuming. A lamb doesn't seem like anyone that's going to be victorious, and yet it's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world by overcoming Satan. And in Revelation chapter 5, this lion of Judah, verses 5 through 7, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that went out through all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and beautiful things begin to happen as he opens up salvation for all of those who will follow the lamb and be protected by the lion of Judah. It's an amazing thing to consider, this blessing of sonship. God has made us physically in a way that we're suited to serve him here as his sons here on this earth. But we're not meant to be sons of this earth. We're meant for something so much more. We're meant to perceive that. And Jesus came to bring the reality of that to full form. So what happened to him right after his baptism? As he went off into the wilderness, engaged Satan and came out victorious, That's what God expects of us. Which son do you resemble? The simple answer was, the son who did the father's will was the father's son. The one who didn't became rejected. But because of Christ, even though all of us had chosen at some point not to do the father's will, we're given an opportunity to come back, to follow in the footsteps of our elder brother who came and lived that perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed the Father's will. He paid the price that was our due. And in being slain, he became the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Would you allow us to help you today to begin resembling Christ, to begin resembling a true Son of God in absolute obedience to His Word? If you're not a Christian, that's the thing we would most love to help you with this day. We'd love to study with you. We'd love to answer any questions you may have. If you're at the point where you're willing to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come in and have your sins washed away as you repent of them through the waters of baptism. We would love to help you with that this day. We rejoice together with you. If as a Christian you have been resembling more a son of this world than a son of God, if you want us to help, hold your hands up and bring you back to the advocate who can save you from your sins. We want to help you with that too. Whatever your need may be, please make it known to us. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage your decision.